What is the intersection of Elon Musk, cryptocurrency, Dogecoin, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Fed? Find out on this episode. In this episode of Compliance into the Weeds, Tom Fox and Matt Kelly take a deep dive into the Biden administration executive order on cybersecurity, which came out the week of the Colonial Pipeline's ransomware attack. The order itself was in response to the Solar Winds hack, which was announced last November. We take a look at the reporting requirements, what it means for compliance, what it means for your software supply chain, and what it means for internal audit. It's an episode that every compliance practitioner needs to be aware of. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we are going to take up the ever-increasingly important topic of cybersecurity. We had uh, one of the most momentous weeks we've had recently in cybersecurity, and uh, Matt wrote about it in a blog post last week, but uh, we decided we should explore it a little more in depth. So, Matt, first of all, welcome. Hello, Tom. Good to be here. So, Matt, we had the uh, Colonial Pipeline hack uh, last week, and then uh, coincidentally, I think, the Biden administration issued an executive order around cybersecurity. Uh, I think some people erroneously tied them together, um, but you pointed out in your blog post that the executive order really was focused more on the solar winds hack that was announced last uh, November. But um, you want to kind of give us a background and then uh, see where we've come since uh, your blog post went up. Yeah, sure. So you're correct that the executive order came out on May 12th, and that was just several days after the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack that shut down gas service all over the southeast of the United States. Um, you know, it. I suspect that politically, the Biden administration decided, let's put this EO out now. So it looks like we are aware of the colonial attack, which they certainly were. But you're right that this was not in response to the colonial pipeline attack. This really was in response to the solar winds attack that happened last fall, where if you everybody can remember, uh, the Russian government agents hacked into SolarWinds last spring, which provides cybersecurity services to many corporate and government agencies. Uh, The Russians hacked into SolarWinds, hacked into a patch that SolarWinds then passed on to its customers, and then all the customers, including many federal agencies, they were all hacked and infected by the Russians through SolarWinds. This executive order is really in response to that. Um, it has a couple of different things that companies will need to be thinking about. Uh, and especially uh, one good question to ask is, is this order really going to affect me and my business? Who it will affect the most are government contractors and very particularly those companies that you're contracted to provide IT services to the federal government somehow. So if you are a cloud service provider, and being government, they have an acronym for everything. If you are a CSP, uh, cloud service providers will need to really pay attention to this executive order because its directives are going to hit you 
pretty quickly. But even if you are not a direct IT services provider to the federal government, um, a lot of this, I think, is going to sweep up a lot of big companies anyways, because most of you are government contractors in one way or another. Or if you're not, then one of your key customers are. You are a supplier and part of the software supply chain, and you're, this is how it's going to get you sucked in. No big company should ignore what is in this order. Uh, so here's really what's in it. Three big things. Uh, number one is going to be better sharing of threat information including a requirement that you report ransomware and related cybersecurity attacks that happen to you to the government if the government is one of your customers. Um, so that is somewhat controversial. This is not the same as a data breach where you have state laws saying that you must announce the breach to affected customers, and that's about personal information that's been collected. This is more like if you are providing some service to the government and you get a ransomware attack, technically under the law, you don't have to disclose that because ransomware doesn't expose public uh, personal information. It locks down information, so you might not have to report it. Now the government's going to make you report it. A lot of companies don't like that. I still think this is going to come because there's no way the Biden administration can tolerate this stuff happening without some ability to understand what's really going on. Uh, number two is going to be a lot more stringent cybersecurity within government agencies. And again, if you are a provider of IT services to the federal government, that means you too, uh, where you're going to have to implement more stringent use of multi-factor authentication, where you log in on a user ID and then they send you a one-time code to your phone and you have to enter that within two minutes or you get locked out. Multi-factor authentication, they want that to be much more prominent and widely used. And they're also going to want to use a zero trust architecture, which is a fancy name for a new type of network design where basically the computer network challenges people all the time. It has zero trust in who you are. So there's going to be a lot tighter access controls and uh, IT governance happening. And then the third big thing that's happening, and this I think is most directly relevant to how SolarWinds attack happened, uh, you're going to have so stronger oversight of the software supply chain. And that's going to include documenting the point of origin or the provenance, as the order likes to say, the provenance of any third-party software you might use. Um, and for people wondering what that means, remember a couple of years ago, I think it was Experian, the credit rating agency, they had a large credit uh, data breach happen where they had grabbed open source software off of the internet to use on their IT systems. And that open source software had a flaw in it that allowed attackers to infiltrate the network and have a gigantic data breach of 100 million customers or something like that. So third-party software that you use or that you pass on to your customer, where does it come from? How have you audited that? How have you governed that to make sure that you are not just grabbing something off of GitHub or one of these other open source platforms and you don't know where it came from? You don't know if it's going to bug in it or not. You're going to have to crack down on that because the federal government is going to impose that uh, on its own purchase. And we have to remember the federal government purchases a lot of stuff. Software supply chain is pretty big and uh, Uncle Sam is a large customer. So 
they are going to force this onto the government contracting industrial complex, which is a very big complex and a lot of big firms. You're all going to get pulled into it in these three ways. So, Matt, one of the things that struck me about uh, these new requirements is that uh, they become uh, best practices and that they become the best practices for those outside the government contracting supply chain. And then the other thing that struck me is that the government seems to have either gone to the position or be moving towards the position that if a company is hacked, it's the company's responsibility. And if they pay a ransomware, uh, the company is going to be the entity that gets into trouble because we can't reach the bad actors in this case. Do you you see that as well? That is very possible, yes. And that is something that businesses will need to think about because you're going to need a policy to figure out how are we going to handle ransomware attacks. Um, But the Justice Department had already been making some rumblings around ransomware as well as the Office of Foreign Asset Control and a couple of other agencies, basically warning companies that if you pay a ransom, to ransomware attackers who are on our sanctioned entities lists or who are terrorists or who are part of a rogue state, we reserve the right to interpret that as you're giving money to the uh, foreign enemy and you could face legal consequences. Uh, So that is very possible. The Justice Department has separately and before the colonial pipelines attack, they had said that they're going to be forming some sort of a task force to reinvigorate their approach to ransomware. They realize it's a problem. They realize companies are getting the squeeze. But also, it is true that you can't be dropping millions of dollars to these overseas attackers, and we have no idea who they are, no idea what they might be doing with that money. Um, Exactly what will that Justice Department enforcement effort look like? We don't know. I, I don't know that anytime soon we're going to see them handing out criminal indictments to companies for paying ransomware. That seems like a pretty provocative stance that would irritate a lot of corporate America. But I think at the very least, they would expect that you report to them that this has happened to you. Uh, you're going to have to cooperate with them in pursuing the attackers overseas. Um, occasionally, the National Security Division within Justice Yes, they do indict foreign nationals for uh, cyber attacks, and you might be required to supply evidence to uh, put that indictment into place or to go help prosecute the case. Um, It's going to be messy. It's going to involve a lot of cyber forensics, your IT security people gather. But what do we do with that information? Well, that's going to be part of the legal department's role as they're cooperating in some way with the Justice Department on an enforcement division, uh, enforcement action. So there's a lot of like sticky stuff that's going to, uh, I guess, straddle across multiple business functions here. I don't think we've got a full sense of what's to come yet, but you can see where these broad contours are going. So let me explore three areas uh, for your consideration, Matt. Uh, It's going to be governance and compliance and audit. How do you see this as impacting both data governance, but more importantly, corporate governance? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I do think a bit about data governance and even getting into some some probably nerdy technical issues beyond the scope of this podcast and this audience. But for example, um, we we here in the United States might not know this, but over the weekend, the Irish 
healthcare service was shut down by a ransomware attack. Like booking appointments, getting prescriptions filled, getting test results, all of it shut down, except for Ireland's COVID vaccination program, which was run on a separate IT system. And so I think from a data governance perspective, you're gonna to start to think about, well, how would we segregate various parts of our systems so that if ransomware attack shuts down one part of our operations, it won't necessarily bring down the whole company. How would we actually do that? Um, I don't think the Ireland healthcare service specifically was designed with that intent. I think it just kind of was happenstance and good fortune, but I think will be the IT security and CIO departments of the world, they're going to be thinking much more about how could we do this, not just segregation of duties, but segregation of data and systems, which is not fun because it gets away from the efficiency of single sign-on and you know, there's universal data all over the place. And this runs contrary to all of that idea, but it might be a good cybersecurity defensive practice. So right away, there's going to be that. Uh, and then from a broader governance perspective, somebody somewhere is going to have to decide for the company, do we pay ransomware or not? And if we don't pay the ransomware, are we prepared for the dislocation and disruption that will follow? That is probably not a question that the compliance officer could answer. I'm not really sure the general counsel would want to answer it, although I suspect they probably could. But this is really going to be a question that the board and the CEO are going to have to decide. This is the hill that we die on, is that we don't pay ransomware, period. Um, so that right there for corporate governance and data governance, you're going to have some issues there. And I, there's lots more about audit and compliance, but I'll, I'll take a breath right here. Well, that's good because I wanted to move on to uh, compliance. Where do you see compliance in this? Uh, you'd mentioned if uh, the government wants information, what you should share, how you should share uh, data privacy obligations you may have to consider, but also how does compliance work with the software supply chain? Yeah, that's, that's really going to be the sticky part here. Uh, broadly speaking, we can say that this executive order is going to be a big change for cybersecurity and operating procedures at the business. Okay, that makes sense. But then the compliance officer has to think through what are the consequences of those changes for my regulatory compliance risks? And Tom, you had mentioned data privacy. That's a very good one. Um, the executive order even says in one of its examples about sharing information on ransomware attacks, we are aware that you have privacy obligations and we'll strive to respect that. Uh, so they're cognizant that there are some compliance risks out there that you're going to have to consider. But I don't think the federal government is going to be very kind to a company that says, well, we had a big ransomware attack. We're not going to tell you anything about it, though, because we're concerned about data privacy rules. Um, I think if Colonial Pipeline or a telecom pro provider or a big bank tried to float that kind of rationale for not admitting a ransomware attack, the feds would flip out. There, there's no way that's going to work. So you're going to need to think through what are our new compliance risks in this uh, changed cybersecurity world that we're going to wind up living in. Uh, and then a big part of it, Tom, you had also talked about there, was the software supply chain. Um, we're going to have to have policies about checking up on the provenance of third-party software we use that we buy from customers. Where did you get it? Or wait, we buy from suppliers. Where did you get it, Mr. Supplier? Did you just grab this off of Craigslist because the code looked cool? 
um, you know, you're going to have policies. You're going to have to have internal controls. You're going to have to have attestations, I suspect. You're going to have to revisit your contract terms and conditions that you uh, put forth to your suppliers. Uh, and you're going to have to be able to demonstrate your compliance with all of that for your customers when they show up from the other end of the supply chain, putting these demands on you. Um, so there's going to be a lot of that that goes on. I suppose you could say in an abstract sense, it's kind of sort of like anti-corruption compliance. Uh, everybody attests to their anti-corruption capabilities and training and controls for their customers who can then go and attest it to their own customers and so on and so forth. Same sort of exercise on a very different sort of a risk, but that's probably where compliance is going to feel a lot of action, I would say. Probably some other ways too, but right away, that's what comes to my mind. Now, what do you see the uh, impacts or effects on internal audit? Well, somebody's going to have to test all these controls and somebody's going to have to redesign these business processes. Um, let's say that we start entering uh, using multi-factor authentication much more often. Uh, okay, well, how are we going to redesign our business processes to put that into place? Uh, how are we going to assure that multi-factor authentication is working as the policy says it should work? Uh, how are we going to remediate everything that it does or doesn't work very well? Um, it's a lot of basic work around redesigning business processes, inserting new controls, testing those controls, documenting that they work. Internal audit is very well suited for that. We could probably give a dozen other examples of how these cybersecurity requirements would result in more controls being inserted somewhere along the way. Um, but the, you know, multi-factor authentication is a good one. If you just want to drop it into the process, you're going to have to redesign the process. You're going to have to test it. You're going to have to think through what are the consequences for that. Um, provisioning user access. Uh, and deprovisioning employees when they leave the company, which has always been a sticky thing for user access controls and internal audit always has to be keeping an eye on that. How would you do all of that with this extra layer of control, multi-factor authentications? How are you going to stuff that into the existing processes for user access that you have and provisioning and deprovisioning, stuff like that? So I do think internal audit, and specifically if you have an IT auditor, those guys are going to be really busy for the next year or two uh, as we try and figure out how to digest these demands that the executive order is going to put on people. Matt, the, um, as we move forward, now we've had a uh, attack on the government. Of course, we had the Target Act, which sort of brought all this to everyone's attention. And, and now we had the uh, attack on critical infrastructure in the form of pipelines. Uh, do you see uh, really any coordinated response beyond the committee the federal government is talking about forming Tom Fox uh, again. NIST thank you for listening to or, this episode uh, business committees trying to uh, figure out some standards that will do some good until the next uh, major you know the, the word coordinated is putting an awful lot of work on that word in that question there Tom uh, there's a lot of stuff that is happening and I can see which parts are going to of the government are going to do what kind of work we take a look specifically the executive order directly
regs, uh, the Office of Management and Budget, the Department of Homeland Security, and a few other agencies, the General Services Administration, uh, to come together and rework FedRAMP, which is the program that defines security standards for cloud-based providers of software to the federal government. So once you are FedRAMP certified, uh, the agencies looking for cloud-based providers can go and find any FedRAMP certified software firm is going to pass the test and then you can start working with them. Uh, you know, they're going to revamp that. They're going to revamp the federal acquisition rule and the uh, def defense federal acquisition rule supplement, which is DFARS for defense contractors specifically. Like that's all going to get revised to include what we've been talking about in government contract bidding requirements. You're going to need to be DFARS compliant to bid on a contract, and now DFARS is going to change to incorporate all the stuff we've been talking about for 20 minutes. Um, you know, They eventually will have uh, the Office of Management and Budget focus a bit more on encouraging agencies to use cloud-based providers, which is interesting because basically the feds are admitting the federal government agencies building and running secure IT systems on their own, they're not going to be as good as cloud providers who are uh, already running this from the private sector. Um, so, you know, cloud-based services are going to continue to be a robust thing that the federal government is going to use a lot. They're just going to up their expectations on the security that CSPs have to use when they offer their services to the federal government. Um, and then I think, you know, ultimately, are there going to be audits of all of this that uh, the agency's internal auditor might go and perform on the software vendors on government contractors? I presume so. It doesn't specifically say it. Uh, all of this is not going to happen overnight. This is probably going to happen over the course of six to 12 months that all of these contracting regulations get revamped. Um, and then for all of this time, we have to remember Defense contractors are already working toward achieving compliance with a wholly different cybersecurity standard, CMMC, which is coming to the defense contracting world over the next several years. And if you are any business or you are a government contractor or not, you are still thinking about my HIPAA compliance, my PCI DSS compliance, if I'm collecting credit card information. You've got multiple cybersecurity frameworks you're already worried about. And now here are the feds talking about increasing the cybersecurity standards for government contracting. So you've got a lot of different frameworks you're gonna to have to manage. You're gonna have a lot of different controls doing different things. You're gonna have a big exercise of trying to simplify those controls, have one control satisfy the requirements for three or four different regulatory obligations. Um, it's going to keep the cybersecurity compliance and audit end of corporate America busy for a long time. And they were already really busy. This does not change at all. It just goes nowhere but up from here. Matt, do you think that this area is so hyper-technical that uh, it, it's really, uh, I don't want to say create a, new, uh, a completely new, di different discipline because we, we already have that, but how, how is a board of directors uh, to really oversee and manage this when a board is is almost always made of, of made up of non cybersecurity experts. 
Uh, well, the first thing they should do is get a cybersecurity expert, and the Securities and Exchange Commission and federal other, several other agencies have made abundantly clear that they would love to have an IT security expert on every board, just like for Sarbanes-Oxley compliance, you need a financial expert on the audit committee. I could, If I could wave a magic wand, I would say have an IT security expert on your risk committee or some other committee. I, I don't know if I'd put them on the audit committee because they've got a lot to do. Um, but it really is going to drive up the importance of the CISO's relationship to the board. It's going to drive up the importance of getting all of your assurance over the supply chain at your business. And different parts of the company get different parts of assurance. Like the chief compliance officer really is worried about um, regulatory compliance. They're worried about anti-corruption. They might be worried about export controls. But you're worried a lot about how are your third parties going to somehow tie your company in the knots? Well, that's exactly what we've been talking about here for the last 25 minutes, but about cybersecurity. So how will you get assurance over your third parties and over your supply chain all the way through on all of the different ways that they could screw your company up and you know tie it into knots and then go to the board and say, we have governed our supply chain sufficiently so that you don't need to worry about it. You can focus on the business objectives and the supply chain is ready to help our business move on those objectives. Um, that's the sort of assurance that the board is going to want. And I don't think there's a single person at the company level who could deliver that. But if you wind up with the HR person and the general counsel, then the CISO and then the compliance officer and then internal audit, and they do this parade all day long, giving the board assurance over 19 different slices of 19 different third-party risks, that's going to drive everybody bananas. Um, and I don't know what the good answer for that is yet, but I do believe that is the governance question to be solved in the coming five to 10 years. So I don't know. I hope, Tom, in 2030, we can sit down and say that we've corporate America has solved this problem. But I think that's what the problem fundamentally is for the board. Well, I think this uh, certainly uh, lends itself to a topic that we can uh, continue to explore, Matt. I would agree, Tom. Thank you. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. We're going to link to Matt's blog post on this issue, which I know you will enjoy. This month on the Compliance Podcast Network, I premiered a new series, Survive and Thrive, where with my co-host, Courtney Nordrum, we take a look at compliance disasters, what are the lessons learned, and more importantly, how can you avoid them? I know you will enjoy this great new series. Courtney's a natural on the podcast. We do a video show as well, so check it out on either YouTube or if you want the audio version on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.